In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. joined by special guest Bruce Piasecki. Dr. Bruce Piasecki is founder of the AHC Group, a management consulting firm specializing in energy, materials, and environmental corporate matters since 1981. He's also the author of seven seminal books on business strategy, valuation, and corporate change, including the Nature Society's Book of the Year, In Search of Environmental Excellence, Moving Beyond Blame. His articles have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Baltimore Sun, Technology Review, and the Christian Science Monitor. His latest book, The Surprising Solution, was published this year, and since 1990, Dr. Piasecki and his staff have run hundreds of benchmarking workshops for numerous multinational corporate affiliates, involving key executives in site remediation, power markets, emerging issues, and governance concerns since Enron. With his corporate environmental strategy book attracting the attention of change agents and board members in his client and affiliates network, Dr. Piasecki has moved the field of environmental and energy strategy closer to financial markets and mainstream financial diagnostics. His profound work is changing the perspective of business leaders through new ideas and a visionary approach to a future where frugality and sensitivity to social interaction is paramount. Welcome to In Discussion today, and welcome back to my special guest who has joined me on many programs over the months, Bruce Piasecki. Bruce, how are you today? Very good to see you again, David, and congratulations on the continued expanse of your listenership. Many thanks, Bruce. As pre-planned prior to the program, I had indicated that I was fascinated with your article, An Idler in the City, and perhaps today we could devote the program to both this and Enterprise Risk. Yes. When did you begin to write this article, Bruce? It was relatively recently. There's a new international magazine uh, called Carpe Articulum, that uh, is a pretty elaborate name, but it's a Hollywood picture book, and they normally interview um, Hollywood stars, you know, like a Gwyneth Paltrow or uh, a Goodman or others. And they liked my book, The Surprising Solution, so they called me up for an interview, and when I found out how beautiful Out of Borders their magazine was, it's truly visually splendid. A lot of the cities that I had visited in my last 20 years of practice as a management consultant, kind of flashed through my brain. You know, I wanted to write a piece about the coincidence of the great satisfying megacities and capitalism, and then reflect on the failed condition of some cities, you know, relative to stresses of natural resources. So An Idler in the City is written... Um, for a number of reasons, but one, it's uh, just an account of the confluence, the, in, in a way, the crash of cities and capitalism. Somewhat of a departure for you, I believe, moving towards one of those publications. You know, I started my career 30 years ago um, writing for the popular press. Um, I was, you know, just out of college, and, you know, I wrote for visual magazines, like at that time it was called Science 83, which was the popular geo version of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I I wrote for 
monthly visual magazines and politics. Um, you know, I wrote for the national papers, um, and then I became a book writer. And so what I'm now interested in is, is trying to write a book um, that is first known by those pieces of the world digitally and visually before it becomes chapters in a book. So I, I'm, I'm thinking of this new book, Doing More With Less, very much like maybe how it Charles Dickens thought about serialization. And so this book, Doing More With Less, is about how in the new century competition and frugality have to be made brothers and sisters. And I think we're beginning to see that happening in how megacities are efficient uses of resources for larger and larger numbers of people. Now, there is a lot of poverty, but there is also a higher efficiency than in suburbia. And while I'm not naturally attracted to cities, um, it was an insight I had kind of reluctantly in going to a third of the world's megacities. And so maybe to help your listeners understand the thing I'm reflecting on, you know, in 2007 when my book World Inc. came out, Tokyo was the number one megacity with 35.7 million people. Um, Mexico City was a fast follower with 19 million. And then my home city of New York, the New York, the Manhattan, Newark complex is, is also as big as Mexico City at 19 million in 2007. And then San Paulo is a close follower, and behind that is Mumbai and Delhi. But what's interesting is that there's going to be a lot of shifts in population by 2025. Um, the UN notes that there'll be more megacities. Um, that four-fifths of the U.S. population will definitely be somehow associated to megacities. But across the world, they think that even more than uh, four-fifths will be associated with megacities. Um, so, you know, so soon other cities that I have visited that will become more significant um, in world politics. Um, you know, I've been to Beijing and, you know, right well, in 2007, Beijing was only 11.1 million people. They're predicting, because of China's growth, 15.5 million soon. And, you know, then you've got places like I went in February, Istanbul, which, interestingly enough, is not growing as fast as some of the other megacities. It's, it's growing, but it's not growing as fast. And then you have other cities becoming more significant, like Osaka, Kobe, or Moscow, or Karachi. And so having had the privilege of visiting as a management consultant, which, you know, ironically, David, a lot of people think of as an economic hitman after reading John Perkins' book, but I always thought of, of it as a chance to understand, understand how the world works. And so after 9-11, I began spending a day before and a day after a management assignment in the big cities because it became so difficult for me to come home due to international security constraints. Um, you know, after 9-11, you just can't fly in and fly out in the same day, or even in two days. And luckily, I have a wife and daughter who sometimes have come with me to these megacities, and we make a little bit of a vacation out of it, as well as a work assignment. So I think of it as a cultural hitman's reflection, this essay. The question I would like to pose today throughout the program is the value, long-term, of whether we should increase this megacity profile. We return, and I think I have indicated this before to you, that I feel that we are now going to another evolution in society, which follows on from the Industrial Revolution. We saw in the 1700s how there was a massive shift of population from the rural areas to the now metropolitan areas. And of course, that's how business, corporate business, has very much shaped itself. Except, of course, as you point out in your article, uh, much of those businesses like Walmart have extended the boundaries of megacities uh, by pulling back out into the rural areas. And, and that's how uh, larger cities like uh, Phoenix and New York have expanded over such a great area. But the question I would posed to you throughout the program is, as we have a great need to seek sustainability, 
return to nature, see that people become more aligned with nature, is it a necessary, necessarily a good thing to keep building upon the premise that people should be uh, enhanced by and attracted by the city when perhaps we should be seeing a movement back out to the rural areas now? Yeah, it's very interesting to think this through. And it's, you know, luckily, um, An Idler in the City is written in a breezy, thought-provocative way so that individuals could decide where they stand on the spectrum. So I hope your listeners understand that I'm not trying to preach the certainty of cities. I'm simply, as a social historian, trying to reflect on how and why they came. So, for example, for almost 10 years now, my firm, the AHC Group, has brought 80 of the largest companies in the world to Phoenix, and we're doing it again January 26th and 27th for an 11th year. During those 10 years, Phoenix, the Valley of the Sun, the place where there really isn't much natural water, became the fifth largest city in America. Um, you need to ask, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? But what's amazing when you take the kind of view that I'm writing about in the essay is that it's happened. And what I'm trying to do in the essay is reflect on some of the efficiency upgrades of that happening. If you look in contrast to the places that you, you also mentioned, Walmart, and how Walmart has extended the boundaries of a normal city. You know, Charles Fishman has written a brilliant book called The Walmart Effect, where he's really leveled a very effective critique of Walmart and how it operates. And he's an award-winning writer. What I'm reflecting on is more the reality that when you go from 4 billion people in the world to 6.8 billion people in the world, the amount of arable land for food has not increased. The amount of energy resources has not increased. In fact, it's probably declined in oil, for instance, 4.5% in net annual availability in the last three years. So when you don't need people commuting out to rural areas, like say, say you're in Phoenix, in, in my way of thinking of the world, it's probably wrong, and, and the market will probably create some signals of it being wrong, for someone to drive past the mountains of the Valley of the Sun, way past Mesa, way past Chandler, way past even um, the wonderful oasis in Superior, Arizona, the mining town, and leave Phoenix and, in a sense, overpopulate the fragile areas um, outside of Phoenix. It's similar regarding food. When, when you go from 4 billion to 6.8 billion, more people are dependent on the reality of agricultural products as opposed upon farming themselves. So, I do delight, David, in the reality that there is a movement of back to the earth, that, that the local is significant for rich proportions of people. Um, but I think it's, not, it's no longer available to everyone. So to set up a dramatic contrast, um, I'm less concerned about what these cities have begun when they keep open, when they keep free. I, I do think the future of freedom resides in megacities where democracy and, and capitalism and the freedom of all people living in the area is honored. Um, and so I guess I'm a little bit like those like George Soros who talk about openness of development, talk about rights, uh, not about the repression of women, not about the repression of due process. I think those issues are hinted at in an idler in the city because I think I'm beginning to see a pattern that's deeper than the population numbers we started the discussion on, where the cities that are becoming less livable are the cities of greater repression. 
and that I think that's the inside of the piece. I, I think the the big question here, when you talk about long term sustainability, and you in this piece point out three main elements: poverty, mobility, and energy diversity. It's a question of whether the urban environment can provide that stability in assuring sustainability more than the rural environment can moving forward. And of course, you talk about this about page four, um, and you do say, how can we call this anything but the relentless logic of social response capitalism? I think my point is, can that social response and this very changing world create a capitalism better in the urban environment, or in terms of people and their position, mental capacity, whether we should be looking more at rural areas that are providing uh, nature to them? that perhaps urban areas cannot. Think for a minute about the contrast that I'm trying to draw in your reader's mind, and your listener's mind. There are certain pockets of the world, for example, where I live, Saratoga Springs, or say, Middlebury, Vermont, where there's a college, that at this point in history are highly improbable, privileged places. They're today's equivalent to the medieval city that's locked in by these citadels of, of wealth. It, it is impossible with 6.8 billion people to satisfy the fundamental needs, uh, food, water, shelter, public health, public service, public transportation, what you refer to as the mental capacities. And so all my work, the whole last 10 years of work in the last three books, from World Inc. to The Surprising Solution to this new one, are about a better capitalism. I definitely feel that capitalism can be fierce and swift and severe, and I talk in the essay about how the United Nations Millennium Project talks about failed states and those 14 to 18 field states like Somalia are actually the byproducts of the kind of world dynamics that I am speaking against. I am speaking on behalf of a better capitalism, on behalf of a longer term geopolitics in which the pain of poverty, in which the need for transportation and mobility and the demands of energy diversification are conceivable, are, are possible. And I am I'm actually not saying that we should go in and blow up the cities of repression or we should go up and socialize these citadels of privilege like where I live. But instead I'm saying that as the world changes, there are these different regions in it. And I think we need to note how many people are in the megacities already. There will be professors at Middlebury who think the whole world should go back to Middlebury, and that is actually being perceived as a progressive thought in some intellectual communities. But I think historically you'll realize it's an incredibly reactionary thought because only a few can live in that type of citadel. It, it, the the reality is, uh, as I see it, it's a numerical reality. There are just so many people in Mexico City that there's that, that there's just so many people in San Paulo. There's just so many people in the great cities of China, and so the question becomes: How can you be? How can you allow? How can you stimulate a more judicious and open system? so that the citizens can discover their mental capacity. Now, without a doubt, it's true that we need to have rural retreats, that we need... I live Saratoga, one of the reasons it's so privileged. You know, I have arguments with Bill McKibben and uh, William Kunstler, who also live near this town or in this town, 
We are so privileged that in our little town of less than 100,000 people, we also have the 6.2 million acres of the Adirondack Park just 20, 25 miles to the north of us. What an incredible privilege to be able to both, within 45 minutes, go to the capital of New York, Albany, go to Boston within two hours, go to the great megacities of the Northeast, like Philadelphia, but still have that rural retreat. So, please, please, I totally believe in the power of nature, in the education and spiritual value of nature. And, and unfortunately, one also has to achieve it by breaking from the computer and taking a walk, even if that walk is on cement. Uh, so it, seem, it seems to me, David, that I'm trying to say provocative things because there is an element of perfect artificiality in human nature right now where you can create a reserve. You must create a reserve like the Adirondacks, and they must be in Italy. They must be in China, because otherwise it will just be one homogenized parking lot. I'd like to look at these three areas that you cite, as in poverty, mobility, and energy diversity, and I, I do like that term, energy diversity. The poverty and the mobility is very much a set of elements that will have to change, have to adapt, problems that have to be met in the megacities. It is definitely, in my mind, moving forward, energy that will allow this world to travel, to be able to depart from those megacities, to be able to explore nature, it seems that energy now is something that has to radically change. Our energy since the late 1700s, if we look at the equation of work and we see how, um, as Einstein said, I believe, for every uh, reaction there's an opposite reaction, it perhaps is that type of energy that we have to look at that doesn't have a reaction, an energy that can be harnessed through technology that will allow people to, yes, work in the urban areas where there is employment, but also have that capability to depart from those areas, return to nature when they can, without putting too much of a dent in their wallets. And perhaps it's energy and sustainability that are two of the most important things that we should look at today to make sure that we have this fine balance for people in order to get that great spread of experiences between the urban and the rural environments. Yes, I'm very much with you, David. And energy and distributed energy is worth pausing on. In The Idler in the City, I, um, I talk about it, but not as deeply as I do in my books, World Inc. If you think of it this way, and this is a dramatic contrast, um, I mentioned that I live in Saratoga, and it's in New York State. And not far from New York State is Pennsylvania. Well, in the last 10 years, the citizens of Pennsylvania and the government of Pennsylvania allowed one natural gas developer to drill 16,000 wells, of which most of these wells are only operational 2 to 5% of a day, because the tax structure allowed that breaking of the ground. It was a tax move, a tax move that is absolutely horrendous. While in New York State, we resisted that invasion into the farmlands, even though there is natural gas in significant regions of western New York and in the regions that touch the borderline, this imaginary borderline to Pennsylvania. And if you fly over that spot, as I have, you see the horrible tragedy of policy uh, that is wrong-headed state government policy or wrong-headed federal policy, so that e energy should mushroom in the regions where it's needed because of actual end use, not because of a tax break. What is so interesting about an idler in the city is that you utilize this word altruism, 
and you reference this wonderful man uh, from the Second World War who worked on instinct, and you can see that being very useful in the way that corporate leaders also work that way, with a great respect not only to humans but also to the environment behind them. And further to that, Bruce, and I think this is in context, is you talk about less importance on nationalism and more importance on corporations as being the leaders of the future. And they really do have a massive responsibility here, both in the mega city environment and in the rural areas. Right. Well, let me talk a little bit about openness in the case in which I'm kind of outraged in Pennsylvania. This kind of cracking of the rock to release natural gas, small amounts of it, um, is an example of failed policy. So that in my work, I, I always believe that open and just government um, is a critical part of the interaction between the market and technical innovation. So I do believe that capitalism left alone as many people are now trying to decide how to vote, that kind of capitalism can go senile easily. It needs rules, and it needs people who have a vigilance of openness, who want to check each other and not allow one tax attorney to build 16,000 wells. It, it is very significant in my mind, David, and in the work that I'm now writing, that we balance money, people, and rules. And that when you have that many people in the same boat, as we've said in earlier interviews, it becomes very important to create a kind of global citizenship that will shine the light of justice on backdoor deals. So it seems, it seems to me that energy diversity will only occur when we protect areas that shouldn't be developed because it's just small pockets of natural gas and we come to accept that there are places where we can develop energy that may have horrible impact, uh, but we, we do need the energy. So if you think for a minute about the tension between all the wells we, dr we drilled for deep well that led to the BP Gulf spill versus some of the debates now that are going on in other areas about oil development, it's a very complicated issue that we're writing about. So what, what I chose to write about in an idler in the city, is when the interaction of cities and capitalism work. Because I find that in many parts of the world, they seem to get better when it works right. I'm not claiming for a second that two billion people aren't disadvantaged by it, but it's that two billion whose quality of life and whose understanding of their mental capacities will be improved when we create this more open, dynamic system. So I, I actually think, David, that there's plenty of instances of regions in the world, and I just use Somalia because it's the one in the news and it's so easy, in which the repressive few are preventing the development of the economy to the point where it is a lot easier to work for the repressive few and do things that your human nature might not want you to do, like take over ships that are moving oil through a strait, because of they have no options. And so my piece is a survey of the key megacities of the world from the point of view that we do need a new form of leadership in the world because we are so strained by carbon and capital constraints. And what I talk about in the essay is that the very nature of capitalism is challenged. You know, the coastal waters that are flooding due to climate change is a perfect example of that. So I think you're right. Energy diversity is the biggest issue of the near future. And I think this is why I was traveling in this direction, Bruce, is because I constantly think about leaders and their qualities. And as you talk so well about this expanded piece of land in your neck of the woods. It always seems to me that political bartering, leverage, 
political influence comes into this and perhaps does not help. Whereas it seems to me that more involvement by the socially responsible corporate leader can take over from that role, probably via some sort of ombudsman or, or third party. But it seems that uh, the political system is probably not well placed to be able to look at the carbon issues, look at fossil fuels, look at ways in which we can retain the global village, but as Schumacher said, uh, keep it small, small is beautiful. And this is why I traveled in the direction of this man who used his intuition uh, prior to uh, shooting an allied soldier, is that it has to be so much more carefully thought out the way that all of these issues that I believe will be governed by the way that we create our new types of energy, that, that will really create the makeup and that balance between people in both areas, whether they're living in the middle of a megacity or living out in a rural environment. Let me give you a case in point again to... And I, David, I, I hope uh, that your listeners understand that I really respect them and, and, and try and capture in the written word complexity in a more careful way than my stories can, you know, during an interview. But about two weeks ago in Baltimore Harbor, two of my clients joined hands on a complex issue that I think is a new source of reliable energy. It's the first, it's called the Fairfield Renewable Energy Plant. And my client that I've worked for for 18 years, Energy Answers International, is bringing 4,000 temporary jobs to Baltimore Harbor, a very distressed area outside of the megacity of Baltimore, and 800 permanent jobs. So for a minute, let me describe to you how he works and why he did what he did. He leased contaminated land from the other firm, FMC, which, in the pursuit of national security, had contaminated the land during munitions manufacturing in World War II. So my client, Energy Answers Corporation, leased the contaminated land for the next hundred years, received uh, Obama's stimulus money, and the governor of Maryland was there as well, as well as the mayor of Baltimore when we did the announcement. It took four years to plan. And they're going to process, it's called processed waste. So when you acknowledge the reality of megacities, when you acknowledge how much municipal waste exists in Washington, exists in Philadelphia, exists in Baltimore, exists in the megacity of the population that exists in that corridor. Normally that waste has just gone to landfills where it emits methane, a greenhouse gas magnifier. So this particular client of mine is processing the waste at different sites, and by processing it means he's taking out the ferrous metals that shouldn't be uh, processed and he's recycling them. He's taking out the plastics. He's taking out the um, coins that people leave in their clothes when they throw them away. And he's processing it so that he's only going to use the high BTU fuel. I should say, finally, because this man read my book, my 1984 book, called Beyond Dumping, and he's been working on these projects with his staff for 30 years, he did get an understanding in the minds of the politicians. The United States Steel Union's vice president of human affairs was there, as were 40 of the boiler makers and the, the people who will make the plant were there, as well as the executive director of the citizen task force that wants to make sure that this processed waste comes to the plant not on their roads. And so the reason he chose the harbor is that barging is possible, and there's railroad lines as well. It takes a huge amount in our global village for someone to have the $1.1 billion insight to take waste from the past that's choking our cities 
to have the restraint and technical knowledge to process it, to have the respect of citizens culturally that he can both get the approval of the steelworkers and the approval of the citizens in the area, and then to dialogue with these diverse stakeholders that the number two regulator at EPA was there. Now, some people call that a win-win-win, and it took four years of planning, and I'm very happy that my firm was acknowledged in the public, in this setting, by putting these two firms together, one that had a damaged, stranded asset and one that had an insight of invention. What I think is wonderful about capitalism when it hits the community is if you do it with openness, you get the kind of result I'm describing. And without a doubt, this is another way to wealth, is all megacities have this kind of distributed waste in the infrastructure. And this particular firm is thinking of it in an inventive way. I'm not saying it's the answer for every city. I'm not saying that I am speaking only on behalf of my client. I'm trying to describe how noble and how appropriate that decision is. Now, did he do it altruistically? And, and in the essay, I reflect on the soldier who chose not to shoot an allied individual who didn't have the pass, the code, to come over the Swiss mountains. I'm, I'm talking about something that's deeper, I think, than altruism, something that's deeper than self-sacrifice, and that is leadership understands how to use social capital. They have an interest in using it. They have an interest in winning the vote of the governor, winning the vote of the steelworkers, winning the vote of the task force citizen advocacy group, and that's social capital, too. And my work is now emphasizing how we cannot compete on sustainability. We cannot allow energy diversification unless we learn how to train more leaders to think like that case I just talked to you about. This is reflecting a completely different approach for the way that capitalism operates. And this is what has occurred probably since Stevenson's steam engine. And of course that paraffin lamp is that although back then we saw wonderful machinery, wonderful engineers that, that came up with everything that defined the Industrial Revolution. It did, however, oppose nature because of the equal amount of waste that it created. And that has in itself created huge problems for society, for the environment, for people. The story that you just gave us in regards to recycling is another step it is proving that there are companies and individuals behind them who are attempting to defuse that element of waste that was created by the Industrial Revolution. And then again, you can look at companies like Toyota with their Prius, which I am now driving, and, and we can see that there is a slow movement not only in people and community, but also in the corporate structure to repel this waste in society and at the same time to create a completely different sort of energy that eliminates that waste in the first place. So perhaps rather than the political machine still considering carbon taxes, still considering how to retain a, a global village with without all the problems of fossil fuels. It is perhaps the greatest effort of concentration on this energy to make sure that it's energy that is harnessed so that people can become more aligned with nature, with the earth, by creating something that does not create this waste. No, absolutely. And I, and I think that uh, just just hopefully this is helpful as it relates to this idler in the city essay is going to be available at www.ahcgroup.com shortly in expanded form after being available at Carpe Articulum. And then eventually it's going to be part of this book I'm doing, Doing More with Less. The way of the future that you've articulated about energy and energy futures is not necessarily only about discovering more sources of energy. It's about doing more with the less energy we have 
per person on Earth. It's also about the market signals that will encourage the satisfaction in people to have restraint and possibly to do things with less. So when you look at the grand history of energy development in America, for instance, and in the Middle East, it's only since to about 1909 that spindle top and the discovery of oil in Texas and then eventually in the Middle East got us on this petrochemical treadmill. It, that's how recent it is, less than 100 years ago. But if you look at the grand scheme of industrialism, you know, David, you know a lot about British history, but if, if it starts, it started with horsepower and a mix of other sources like wood power. And, and, and then the slices on the pizza pie became more diverse, and we went from horsepower and wood power to steam power, like you mentioned. And eventually we went to petrochemical power sources. And the slices will need to continue when you have 6.8 billion people because there'll need to be biofuel power now of all sorts, wind, photovoltaic, um, and, and other sources of power uh, beyond nuclear What's particularly interesting is you realize that the pie wheel of energy is diversifying is what you come to understand as you're an idler in the city. You come to understand that there is something historic and inevitable about that diversification. So I've never been a person, David, that in my work just tries to advocate one kind of slice of the pie, just solar, for instance, or I am on the board of a solar company, but everybody on the board knows that my arguments are about needing to liberate more open forms of energy rather than just one kind. I, I think we have so many needs for energy that I, I, I just believe that the authentic thing to do is require, for, require that diversity. Well, I believe that the energy of the future will become very much a universal energy out of all the different types of solutions that we're trying to come up with today, whether it would be solar panels in a state like Arizona or wind power in the Upper Hebrides of Scotland. I think that they are all going to be part of a process that leads to a very divine energy that does not create the waste that we are seeing. But I think what I am getting from your article it's so well written because it not only talks about capitalism in it for its own sake, but it does also talk to the human being. And I think my point here is that we talk about energy as being uh, something that's created by a nuclear power station or by a coal plant. And that is how industry works. That's what they believe the definition of energy is. But I wonder whether they actually look at the definition of energy when it's appointed to the human being. There's a great place here to start looking at uh, the energy that can be created by the human being that will be enhanced the more that energy is refined, the less negative energy or opposite reaction that you create. It's all going to work together, I'm sure, whether people live in the urban environment or out in the sticks. As long as there's an energy that is cutting down on the carbon emissions, cutting down on the fossil fuels and the waste, it will change the way that people think and breathe and, and operate because it will enhance their own personal energy. Would, would you agree with that statement, Bruce? I would. I think there's something both beautiful and dangerous about the way you just described it. You know, if if your readers, uh, I know, David, that you're planning to post this Idler in the City on your webpage, and I hope when you post it, you link to carpearticulum.com, because there people will get the hyperlinks to really delve into this if they want to. A man who introduces this essay and my last book to Carpe Articulum is Ted Hoffman, and he's a 35-year veteran of newspaper work. He normally writes for Carpe, interviewing you know people like Gwyneth Paltrow and Hollywood stars. But I was very fortunate that he did six pages on my last eight books, and he kind of is a prelude to this essay. And if you go to that full account, one of his 
brilliant insights that echoes what you just said, David, is he thinks that in order to solve the problems in the near future, the lambs of humanism must sit with the lions of capitalism. And I thought that was a brilliant way of phrasing it. So in, in my essay, you'll see that I actually talk about social change agents like Abe Lincoln and Alexander Graham Bell and Tom Chappelle of Toms of Maine and Rachel Carson and Ben Franklin and others like Martin Luther King in the context of social response capitalism. Because these were people who thought about poverty, who thought about mobility, who thought about democracy, and tried to find a humanistic as well as a technical solution to these horrible issues before humanity. So I've come to now really like this man, Ken Hoffman, because he had an insight about what I've been trying to do silently for 30 years, and that, in a way, I'm trying to take the humanistic tradition and find the pieces of it, the articulate power of it, what he calls the lambs of humanism, to either fight with the lions or get the lions to sit down in a constructive way. So well cited by the great writers like Shakespeare, of course. I think that poverty is undeniable in terms of the reaction to capitalism. Out of those three areas, and of course the the type of capitalism that we're talking about that utilizes so much more understanding of the human position, should in itself reduce that element of poverty. But I also like your word mobility, because people need mobility. People like to move around. Uh, there is always going to be the movement of people to find resources, to find employment, and notwithstanding the fact that people have over the th last thousands of years proved that they always like to return back to their homeland. But it is that partnership, is it not, between mobility and energy diversity that will not only define the new social capitalism and the way that it's approached by leaders, but it will also in itself define human beings who will then themselves become to realize that they are also capitalists in themselves because there is a shared common journey. Well said. You know, what I've been thinking about, David, is the reason I chose to call the piece an idler in the city is that naturally I don't find myself at home in cities, and that's why I'm in Saratoga. But I do think there is a certain power in the word idler because if you think of it, when you're using your imagination, when you're talking with a great friend, when you're taking a walk with a lover, you're not consuming resources. You're being human. And so there is a power in frugality. There's a beauty in restraint that people can have, either on a farmland or in a city. But I think there's something so crazed about the frenzy of modern life that we sometimes forget that. Now, nature definitely reminds one of that. But you can also remind yourself of that and achieve that meditative calm that I've just tried to describe. So I think humanism does allow that. And, and I, I guess I preach a kind of global humanism instead of global globalization. I wonder sometimes, Bruce, in closing here towards the end of the program, that we have been talking about frugality now for many programs. Is frugality more appointed to a writer perhaps 200 years ago like Franklin? Is it perhaps, I was going to say decadent, and I don't think that that is a fair word, but do you think perhaps frugality is a word that would be feared by people do you think they would be scared of the thought of frugality? Yes, and I, and I think I have plenty of evidence that people um, view it as threatening, and I'm trying to describe it as a source of important satisfaction. So just to be very risky, David, in closing, I think the most effective people are people who discover 
frugality, and it's a very important source of insight and imagination and living in the world, being thrown into this world. So I believe that when a person prays, their prayers might be more effective if, if frugal. When a person begs, they, they might actually be more effective if the begging is frugal. When a person longs for something that they know is out there and they can't capture it, it's probably better to take it in a less wasteful way to satisfy your longing. And that I think humanity teaches us how to live large, but that doesn't mean live wastefully. And so I don't think it's a ancient word in the sense that it's a dead word. I think it's a forgotten word. We love competition. We love speed. And I'm trying to balance the picture with the reminder of the beauty of these other words that have sometimes been forgotten. We don't all have to drive 100 miles to work at 70 miles an hour. And that we can shape the rules of our life in such a way in which we can enjoy the beauty and the satisfaction of frugality. And I think that many would be attracted by the words liberty and freedom today. Agreed. Well, I wish you well in the coming days, Bruce. It has again been such an enormous pleasure to share this program with you, as I'm sure we'll continue to do so. An Idler in the City was a wonderful piece. I did enjoy it. Thank you for sharing it. You're welcome. We will look forward to seeing you again on in discussion in the not-too-distant future. Thank you for your time. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Dot com.